Welcome to Nicholas Galaxy Brain. My name is Matthew. Each week, I sit down with some of the brightest people named Nicholas building in Web3 to talk about what they're working on right now. In today's episode, I sit down with Nicholas with four leading ends. Welcome back to another episode of the JuiceCast. Today, we'll be talking with Nicholas. Nicholas is a longtime Juicebox DAO contributor, an active developer, and host of Web3 Galaxy Brain, a casual weekly Twitter space series where he interviews builders about their projects and interests. In this episode, we dive into Nicholas's background and what it is about social networks that makes him tick. We discuss the evolution of Juicebox from the early days until now, as well as his recent work on Juicebox metadata. We also touch on his recent hackathon project at Youth Waterloo, Piggy Bank 6551 NFT. So before we get into this episode of the Juice Cast, I mean the bin cast, <laughs> sorry for the weird stack of Easter egg colored bins behind us, our dining room light fixture suddenly fell from the ceiling one night and we needed something to hold it up. So that's why they're still there. It still hasn't been fixed. So. Also want to give a quick shout out to the team at PeelDAO for shipping the new project pages on juicebox.money, which are now live. They feature a fresh new layout, new checkout experience, and the ability to bookmark projects and subscribe for email updates. Stay tuned for even more features like the ability to add project updates and images and markdown formatting in project descriptions. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. All right. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you so much for joining us on the JuiceCast today. For anyone listening that doesn't already know, Nicholas was the OG host of the JuiceCast for episodes one through four. Uh, so it's very fun to have you on as a guest now on the JuiceCast. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Before we get into your background and like a little bit of the Nicholas origin story, I was wondering if you could talk about the name Nicholas with four N's. Like, were there other names involved or like, was it just like Nicholas with other N's were taken? Did you have other pseudonyms in the hopper? <laughs> um, yeah, I had another name. Uh, in college, I decided I, or maybe just before college, I decided I preferred Nicholas to Nick. And my prior name had Nick as in it. So I, I needed to change. And I thought if you click N a bunch of times, you'll, you'll eventually find me. So this way you don't have to remember too much. I just say like mash the N key and you can find my name. So it's kind of a, a Twitter SEO hack. All right. Well, let's dive into the Nicholas origin story. So <laughs> I remember following you back on Twitter. You had maybe like, I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 followers. And at the time, I, uh, I don't even think I knew what Ethereum was. Uh, <laughs> so I'm curious to know like how your interest in crypto first began and sort of what you were up to around that time. Yeah, totally. Um, so before I got into crypto, seriously, I guess I bought some ETH in, I think 2017 was the first time on Coinbase I, I bought some ETH, something like that, just a, a few hundred dollars. And I didn't really pay much attention. I knew that ETH was the most interesting uh, blockchain to me, but I didn't know much more than that. And uh, I had this impression that crypto was very mathematical. This is like before DeFi even really existed. So, you know, Ethereum was very cryptography based. Little did I know there were even people doing like NFTs, you know, in various forms back then. But I then heard about NFTs and a friend convinced me that they were just, it was like CryptoKitties era. And a friend convinced me that they were just like IPFS. I didn't even know what IPFS was, but they were CIDs on the blockchain. And so it wasn't even real. And it was just like a dumb certificate and it's not interesting. So I just never looked into it because uh, this friend convinced me that they weren't. 
And then uh, in 2020, I finished working. Uh, I was at the same time working on a master's degree at uh, kind of the intersection of technology, like computer science and a little bit of electronics and fine art. Uh, and I was doing this independent research project into the supply chain and the fashion of creating new networks, be they social networks or uh, hardware, software, services, kinds of things. Uh, and at the same time, I was working in a community center in a fab lab, basically like a maker space with a laser cutter, 3D printer, that kind of thing, embroidery machine, and uh, some inspiring people helping helping anybody learn how to use those tools. So like really a community center based uh, fab lab, not a exclusive one in a university or something like that. And, and simultaneously doing that research, I finished the, the grad degree eventually in the summer. And I just at that time, it was like really the beginning of the NFT bull market picking up. And it was right around the time Beeple uh, sold for 69 million. I think I had started paying attention maybe a month or two before that during the summer. And uh, yeah, I, I very quickly was like reconsidered uh, NFTs. I remember there were a bunch of threads uh, at the time, Metacovan uh, was a bigger force in the ecosystem, and uh, some of their Twitter activity kind of woke me up, as well as um, G Money's original thread about why I bought this 140 ETH JPEG and learning about the culture of using PFPs in a Discord uh, as a reason why you might value uh, an NFT, even if its metadata were off chain, really kind of woke me up to some of the potential. And it seemed really compatible with like the creator economy. Uh, for creators on other platforms where they're restricted in what they can say or what they can sell, being able to like augment their offering with this extra thing that maybe starts small but could potentially get bigger. It just seemed to me to make a lot of sense that, that influencers and, and other kinds of creators would naturally want to layer this thing in, which isn't subtractive of anything they're doing, but instead just adds a new revenue stream for pretty low cost, it seemed like it would happen. And I guess that still hasn't totally happened. But th those are some of the things that made me pay more attention in, in fall, summer and fall 2020. And then from there, like from NFTs, how did you get involved in like the DAO landscape? Yeah, the DAO landscape. So I uh, had had this Twitter account for, geez, many years. I even had an older account covering similar subjects before I, I forget why I switched, but I've, I've been on Twitter for a long time. And I talked a lot about uh, like social networks and kind of this art practice of whatever's at the intersection of influence and technology companies and refining a vision and Bell Labs and Ted Nelson, all, all these kinds of subjects. And I discovered that I had uh, already had a following that had a experience in the crypto industry. Some folks who had been at Coinbase, uh, who would go on to do Zora and other people from like Dapper Labs, it turned out were already following me. So I just started talking more and more about crypto and kind of fell directly into like, oh, actually, I know a lot of people here. So that's kind of the, how my Twitter account got traction originally. And I just spent too much time on Twitter and, and was talking about issues that were related to, to building crypto organizations. And then I befriended Anish Agnihotri, uh, who was the original author of Party Bid, uh, the MVP. Uh, he wrote in response to a tweet from Dennis Nazarov from Mirror. I was friendly with him and Party Bid was used to win some foundation auction or something. And then turned into more of a, a DAO that hired a team uh, that Anish was originally on, but eventually left to do other projects and uh, a more permanent team formed uh, at Party DAO. Uh, and then they eventually raised uh, uh, venture capital and stuff. So Anish gave me a few tokens from Party, 10 Party tokens, I think it was, in order to join the Discord because I expressed some interest in it, which was super generous of him. And then from that experience, I spent some time in their Discord. I ended up being contacted sometime later by this character, LDeFi Jesus, 
who was a part of a group of people who were raising funds on Rinkeby to bid on Rinkeby nouns, uh, which are like testnet versions of the nouns contract before it went to mainnet. And he got in touch with me because I was in PartyBid and he had seen my Twitter account and asked if I could help to make PartyBid compatible with the nouns contracts so that they could collectively bid on mainnet when nouns went to mainnet. And it turned out it wasn't possible. The nouns contract was closed source until the launch on mainnet. So it wouldn't have been possible to write the adapter contracts that PartyBid would have needed to interface with the auction. So he, he went off and then came back to me much later saying, you know, we have a, a multi-sig where if you want to pitch into it, I decided not to participate. And then uh, the nouns auction happened. The first one was won by a, a private party. And the second one, SharkDAO had formed, uh, which was the same group of people who had found Juicebox and were using Juicebox to fundraise uh, to win a noun. And they ultimately did win noun number two. So I was paying attention to the nouns auctions uh, in those early days and they were on Twitter spaces. And I, I sort of learned that it was SharkDAO was the same thing as this guy who had contacted me previously, ended up joining the SharkDAO uh, Discord and listening in just after they had won as Django and some other people who were helping out with SharkDAO in the early days were adjusting the uh, issuance rate of the Shark token for donations because they had now you know owned a noun and had won an, an auction. So I kind of got a little exposure to the juice box mechanism right away in that first call. And then I spent a lot of time actually working at SharkDAO. And then I sort of started to pay attention more to Juicebox, which was more closely aligned to what my interest had been before, which is like infrastructure for enabling people to do new things, self-organize, uh, experiment with alternate forms of uh, organization of groups of people and assets. So yeah, that's how I found Juicebox. You've, you've been involved in like the Juicebox ecosystem for like so long. I'm curious to know like what your experience has been like in seeing the way the protocol has grown from like SharkDAO days to like where it is now. Yeah, when I joined, there were just like a handful of people hanging around. I recall Django, Perry, uh, Zug, Sage, Mios, Zom, Exekius might have been there at the time. Also, there might have been others who I'm forgetting. Uh, there were even some people who were there before me who had left already. There was one guy, I can't remember, but he sort of tuned out uh, even before I, I got involved in July 21, I guess it was. So it was a very small room of people. Everything was informal. There was no formal governance. There was just people chatting in Discord and kind of doing even informal polls, not even like actual polls in Discord to decide what to do. It was very much like who's in the room and, and it wasn't a contentious governance environment. There was no formal governance at all. So I was involved early on in kind of helping to organize uh, meetings a little bit. And I remember working with Zug in those early days a lot on trying to keep the Discord organized and develop some process around governance so that it isn't too uh, arbitrary or People don't feel like there's an unequal distribution of power. It's trying to make some formal rules. So it, it evolved very organically and everybody kind of pitched in there. Lots of different characters that sh showed up and, and went their own way. And one thing that's always remained consistent is that it's always been very open to people kind of coming and helping or uh, going off and doing their own thing. And uh, what's evolved? I mean, so much. Everything has evolved. The protocol has been uh, rewritten uh, substantially one time and deployed in various subversions multiple times. Also cultural development, huge number of contributors received grants over the, the time since then and did all kinds of different projects and different media. So many different things uh, have happened and the doors have kind of been opened in terms of the protocol. I'd say that's one, one thing that's even more, the branching paths have increased since those days because the protocol in its current iteration allows for much more extensibility than that original one did. 
So not only does it address things like, I remember Shark wanted to pause issuance. It wasn't something you could do in the original version. So Django came up with some scheme for still issuing tokens, but promising to burn them and things like this. Uh, and nowadays the protocol supports that and, and so much more. So yeah, it's, it's changed in many ways. Have you enjoyed your time as a DAO contributor? Like, is this a type of, I don't know if we can call it a workplace, but is this, uh, yeah, like an environment that you like working in? I'm just curious broadly, like Absolutely. your experiences as a full-time contributor over the years. Yeah, I mean, Juicebox DAO has been one of the most amazing places to work. I think there's been many other things that have happened and people have been excited about during that time, but I feel the good energy of the contributors, you know, of course it's not, not perfect and there's always issues, but I think people have generally good intentions towards one another. And even when there's conflict, I think there is an underlying, you know, respect uh, for each other and people are pretty humble overall. Everyone's got a wacky personality, of course, it's like the <laughs> wild west, but yeah. uh, I think as, as a place to be, and also frankly, I mean, uh, as supportive of people's desire to grow there's so much. There's so, so many great things about it. Why don't we dive into the Juicebox metadata uh, contracts? Like maybe we can start with Token Resolver. Like, do you want to tell us a bit about that contract that you authored along with a few folks from the contract crew that helped out and what it does? Yeah, and absolutely. then we can get into Juicebox cards after that. To begin, uh, Juicebox protocol, uh, every Juicebox project is represented by an NFT. The owner of these NFTs are the accounts that control their parameters and can uh, decide the issuance rate and all, you know, how much is going to be spent, etc. So the fact that Juicebox uses NFTs as the ownership mechanism is really great because it means it's compatible with lots of different protocols. So you can have a project owned by a MetaMask wallet or by a Gnosis Safe uh, or by a on-chain governance contract or even things that are designed in the future because whoever owns the NFT can control the project. When I started this project, they had no uh, metadata, which is to say no image or text or categories in the OpenSea page or other ways of viewing NFTs. And the affordance had been created, Django and the contract crew included in the, in the protocol, in this NFT contract, JB Projects, that, that is the home to all these NFTs, the ability to set a metadata resolver, which is to say another contract that the project's contract will ask, what's the metadata for this, uh, for this NFT? anytime anybody asks it for the metadata. So I decided it would be interesting to work on this problem and to create a contract that would represent some of the values of Juicebox and also populate this empty metadata field. So the first thing that I thought to do was to create on-chain metadata, which essentially means a contract that would go and grab statistics about the projects and generate an SVG, uh, an image, based on those uh, data from the protocol directly live on chain without any kind of off-chain dependency. And this is important to me because I think it sort of emphasizes and uh, makes visual and tangible the fact that Juicebox is a set of immutable contracts uh, that really honor the sovereignty of the individual to participate, to read everything, to do their due diligence without requiring any kind of uh, secret knowledge or access to knowledge that's off-chain. Everything is really just on the blockchain. So uh, representing that fact through the visual of the SVG, I thought would be interesting. And I also thought it would be interesting to let the person customize or change their metadata if they prefer to have their project have their own metadata instead of the one that's uh, prescribed by default by the DAO. You know, Juicebox has this principle of allowing people to choose if they want to upgrade their project if an upgrade is made available by the DAO. 
or by some other party who's written the code. And updates and changes are never forced on the DAO. There's really only a small handful of administrative functions that the DAO has access to. Uh, For example, the DAO can set the fee between zero and 5%, but no higher than that. And another one is uh, the ability to set this uh, token resolver metadata contract. So I decided to do this on-chain SVG contract, and that would become what's called the default token resolver now. And the default token resolver goes and fetches this data and creates a little card for you for every project uh, that shows the project's name, if it has a handle set, as well as its balance, how many tokens have been issued, what address owns uh, the project, et cetera. And this is all drawn from the chain uh, in real time. It doesn't require any IPFS or Arweave or HTTP calls. It's entirely on-chain. So that's the, the, the default resolver. And as a little Easter egg, I allow people also to change the theme colors of their project so they can more suit the attitude of their project. Just a fun little customization. And then sitting in front of that contract, uh, over the course of developing it, I realized rather than enforcing that everybody have the same one, it would be advantageous and more of the spirit of Juicebox to let people set their own. And so the token resolver contract that's set on the Juicebox projects uh, is actually a, a registry. And it allows any project to set their own uh, metadata contract. And if they haven't set anything, then it will by default serve the one that I just described. So every project on Juicebox that's uh, up to date, at least, has access to this uh, generated on-chain metadata. And if they choose, they can change the colors or change the contract altogether. I've also written another one that allows anybody to set a IPFS or HTTPS as the source of their metadata. So if you want to do off-chain metadata, you can also, it's, it's also compatible with that. And that's just like another registry for the static metadata. So if you wanted to have your own page somewhere hosting metadata that could even do interesting things, uh, whatever you want, serve from HTTPS or IPFS or any other string, as long as it returns JSON, then OpenSea and everybody else will be able to read it. So that's the token resolver set of contracts. Awesome. Thank you. And so I'm built on top of the work that you did for Token Resolver is Juicebox Cards, which I mean, maybe it's probably best if you if you tell us about it rather than <laughs> describing it. But um, you've recently built the, the front end at Juicebox.cards, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, like what, what does this do and how does that build on the work that you did with the Token Resolver? Yeah, so Juicebox Cards is sort of a next project that falls quickly after this token resolver work. And basically the thinking was, it's cool that projects now have metadata and they can even customize it, make it whatever they want. But it's pretty rare that people actually go to the Juicebox Projects project on OpenSea or, or whatever their favorite NFT viewer is. And people aren't really trading these or selling them because they represent ownership of the projects. So they don't, they don't move that often and people don't see the collection pages. So I thought, you know, we put all this work into building this on-chain metadata, and maybe people will even make their own metadata contracts for their projects. Uh, I know Dr. Gorilla has already done so. Then why not allow people to collect these things? So I created an 1155 open edition contract called juicebox.cards, which is also the website where you can mint them. And uh, juicebox.cards lets you collect a, a card, which is an NFT open edition with the same metadata as the project itself. So everybody who's like an enthusiast of the project can collect one of these cards. And if the project ever changes its metadata or it just naturally updates as a function of having more ETH in the treasury or what have you, it'll immediately be reflected in the card in everybody's wallet. So it acts kind of like a programmable billboard where true fans of the projects can keep them in their uh, wallet, check out the project, maybe as a way to even see the treasury growth or expenditures, how much they're planning to distribute or what the total token supply is. 
And then it can also update if the project ever decides to customize their metadata. So that's Juicebox cards. It's really an open edition built on top of the same technology as the token resolver for Juicebox projects. Nice, nice. And you also, you, you made like a, almost like a starter repo for someone if they want to do their own project metadata for like their own Juicebox project, right? Yeah, uh, there's a bunch of other contracts. Uh, There's the Juice Token Resolver template, I believe it is. We'll put the links. But there's a a version uh, that's really convenient if you want to make your own token resolver. It imports all the Juicebox stuff already and gives you a a basic contract as well as a basic test that you can run in Forge that will render the SVG just so you can see it really easily. And there's another version that's just straight SVG. So if you you want to just do your own SVG contract, it's a good starting point for very quickly being able to just download this repo, open VS Code or whatever your code editor is, and just run a test and see immediately the SVG from Solidity right in your browser. And yeah, as I mentioned, there's also like a a couple example, more full contracts like the default resolver and the static metadata one, which could also be useful for people. I know some version of this was used uh, by Defifa to customize their uh, 721 delegate on their uh, project. So already uh, it's being used and picked up by some people in the ecosystem. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about what your interest is in NFTs with on-chain metadata, because it seems like a significant interest of yours, whether that's with Juicebox cards or projects like Terraforms, where like you're a large holder. Like I'm wondering what it is about the on-chain metadata, like being able to either change it yourself or allowing other people to change it that you're drawn to like why you think it's important, either from like a technical perspective or a cultural one? Yeah, I think there's uh, lots of different kinds of interesting NFTs. And one of the interesting kinds is the kind that engages most directly with what the blockchain offers as a medium. And it's not clear to me if, you know, the future will, people will care more or less about things being truly on-chain. But there is something interesting about being really native to this new technology that's potentially permanent in some sense, censorship resistant, potentially for the most part, and also not dependent on a, you know, a credit card and a company attached to some Amazon instance somewhere. So I think there is something interesting about like blockchain art and on-chain NFTs are maybe one of the most blockchain art focused types of NFT. So I just think it's cool. Um, I think Ethereum is kind of like a computer from the 70s, this kind of gas optimization, uh, compression, really focusing on only putting the necessary data on chain. You know, there's like this interesting niche where some people are interested in the compression and the optimization, but want to put more than other people think is necessary on chain. Some people think, you know, you should just be putting proofs and Merkle roots and things like that. And really you shouldn't burden the chain with anything more than that. It's not an efficient way to do it. But there's other people who feel that IPFS is not a solid enough place to locate the artwork of a piece of art. So I I just think on-chain art is an interesting dimension of this. I think probably blockchain art is the most interesting piece or even cryptographic art rather than just like NFTs, which is these days usually means 721 token URI, maybe 1155 to an extent, but instead just like creating some social happening that people actually care about and it being on chain is particularly cool. You get all these advantages of censorship resistance, et cetera, but also tap into a whole different network of people with a native sense of finance and a global audience. I just think the, the, it's like an interesting area to be thinking about, but no guarantees that it's the most popular type of NFT over time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm curious because like I've known that you have been interested in math castles and that community for quite some time and you've been pretty active. Like on the flip side of that type of on-chain art is also like the PFP collections that are 
more, I guess, almost like Web2 adjacent in that they're trying to engage more in like a brand building exercise or they're trying to create like an IP empire, like a la Disney or, or whatever else. You know, in like the last week or two, we've seen a lot of those floor prices kind of get destroyed. I don't know. Have you been thinking about this recently as, as someone who's pretty heavily involved in in the NFT scene, like whether the, the promises yeah. of a lot of these projects have fallen through or is this like not something you're paying attention to? Yeah, I think a lot of these brands grew too fast, like much bigger valuation than the actual audience size without a clear argument about why their success amongst crypto speculators would lead to success outside of that market. And the market's pretty small and it's gotten smaller uh, since they were very successful. So I don't pay too much attention, honestly. I don't hold very many of those collections, uh, maybe any. One thing that's interesting about the on-chain stuff relative to the PFP stuff is that I think it's interesting to cultivate a real actual following that really cares about the thing rather than community. I mean, obviously, if the community cares about it primarily for the price, if the price falters, they start to get angry and, and maybe the thing is actually hollow. At the same time, I don't think it's a, uh, it's required that collections be maximally like blockchain art. And I think the doing partnerships with other, other organizations can make sense and achieving some kind of notoriety can propel something to being, you know, a next level kind of brand. I think of when you asked the question, uh, my interview uh, on Web3 Galaxy Brain with uh, uh, David Horvath, who has built some uh, like cartoon characters that have been very successful, kind of in the Hello Kitty vein. And I think he would say, well, actually, he, he, he'd have so many things to say. He, he would say, uh, you should start with a children's book because it'll retain the most IP. But I guess NFTs offer another another direction for that. But it's difficult to take something that doesn't have a genuine audience to market, especially if they're going to go from something like a tiny NFT collector base to Walmart or some other big box retailer or Amazon even. The same skills for generating hype in the crypto scene may not directly apply to a broader audience that doesn't know about that yet. I think one thing that's very interesting in this direction is the Reddit PFPs that people don't talk about enough, where they've got millions and millions of Redditors who should be people who mm -hmm. despise crypto and NFTs, uh, all have like implicit Polygon wallets on their phones. And my sense is that maybe that project has slowed down or I don't, you don't hear as much about them doing anything with that, but it would be interesting if they did something with that. I mean, those will sooner or later be ZK wallets built into the Reddit app. And now Reddit is forcing everyone to use Reddit app instead of other apps is it's a potential sleeping giant my suspicion is that this may get lost in the shuffle of the organizational internal stuff rather than really exploited to its maximum but if they were open to actually having that wallet exposed for instance a reddit owned marketplace where they took a fee on all nfts on polygon that are uh, purchased through the reddit app I, I would happily make an nft collection that speaks to the audience of reddit users who could even be paying in usd with a credit card and suddenly collecting a second collection in addition to their PFPs. But I don't understand from an anthropological perspective exactly how they have managed to get the Polygon NFTs through the door at Reddit with the, with the subs. And I don't know if maybe the context now would make it harder for them to introduce new things because they've created such a, the management has created such a hostile relationship with the mods. Maybe there will be more skepticism of productization of crypto in the app. But it would be a perfect storm. I mean, gosh, it's a lot of people with a soon-to-be ZK, I don't know, account abstraction wallet or, or whatever it is that Reddit, I guess, custodial wallet. So yeah, cool stuff. And, and I don't think PFPs are dead or, or anything like that. And obviously, I don't think NFTs are dead. That's, it's kind of weird to see people say things like that. You've mentioned a few times throughout the recording your interest in social networks. I'd like to know, like, one, like, what 
it is about social networks that interests you, but also how that has changed since your like involvement in like blockchain has like changed that. I'm just curious to know in general, like what it is that you're drawn to about it. I guess it, I, when I was younger, I thought maybe I would study something like cognitive science or urban design or what's upstream of specific creative gestures is sort of the context in which they percolate and the difference between having a city or not having a city or living in one area versus living in another are kind of translated into a medium where a small group of individuals can have much greater impact. Like it would be pretty difficult for us to start a city, but basically if we all hit the books, you know, we could start a social network soon. So the leverage of uh, small groups of people that ubiquitous internet and software and pretty convenient and affordable devices has given us is like an incredible opportunity. And I've always perceived of it as like a, a, a brief window while the internet is truly global, which started to fall apart, uh, you know, almost immediately. But, and, you know, it's, it's been the case that we've had sort of limited access to China or Iran or North Korea and other places. But overall, the internet remains pretty much global. And certainly if you run the productized form, if you run the equivalent of Facebook, you know, if you run your own website, you can still be accessed. Like it, it is still possible. You might not be able to say whatever you want on Facebook anymore or Instagram or shown to people even, but if you can get them your link, uh, people can still access your website. So I've always felt that there's an incredible opportunity to, you know, have some impact or have some taste or creative expression related to how people relate to one another, of which I am a subject also. Like it, it's not a role outside of the system, but very much we find ourselves in the system and our parents didn't have any sage advice for us. In fact, they're like, if anything, more subject to the whims of the algorithm in terms of informing their attitude or feelings or, or what they think about. So I've always felt that that's like an interesting medium for creativity. I don't really feel like very many people have said very much creative about it. I have come to wonder if is the uh, UX designer telling the users what to do or are the users like chimpanzee behavioral psychology telling the UX designer what to do? Like it's interesting to watch Musk uh, muck around because he's, he is acting as an individual making decisions, which is not usually how these things go. Like ultimately Facebook, at least especially has which is very dominant in, in communications media, has taken a like path of least resistance in terms of human behavioral psychology. And there are great talks by people, what is it, Donald Brown? Alan Kay talks about this anthropologist who has like an appendix in one of his books that's just like human universals, like things that all humans all over experience. And Alan Kay's cynical rib at that is like, just pick one of these things if you just want to make money, just like make, make software that sat satisfies one of these things, which 30 years later has been presented to us as like sage advice about what kind of YC startup to start. But the point is that those are not, in a way, they're not even creative because they're, I mean, they have the opportunity, like you need to hook into some kind of sugar rush, but ideally your goal is something more than just serving the pleasure neuron or whatever. So I don't know how crypto has changed that feeling. Definitely NFT communities felt like mini social networks, mini tribes uh, with a lot of potential, but I didn't really believe this like Moonbirds idea that you would just turn that into a software product company. It's not as obvious to me that you go from one to the other. I think maybe, you know, the political dimension of some other collections actually seems more right for the medium. Like it's creating a cultural unit and then it's not about building the literal infrastructure, but instead about propagating whatever that idea is. So I think we haven't seen the end of it at all. I mean, as for so social networks and crypto, I think one thing I'm observing a lot lately is kind of the power of building the tribe rather than having the right technology and that the tribe is 
it's not exclusively important, but it's probably more important on the whole than having the right technology. And it's interesting to look at Ethereum in, under that lens because it's kind of both. But at the same time, like, I don't know, the proof of work chain is not what we're going to stick with. So in a way, like changing out the engine while the plane is flying is much easier than getting a plane to fly or much easier. I don't know. It's relatively easier once there is some ideally not toxic core to attract more people to continue working on it and, and building it into something rather than like booting up. Such a thing is pretty difficult. And two examples of that that I think are interesting are, are Polygon and Zora, where both have multiple times changed what the product is, what the tech stack is, probably have very hairy tech debt related to all of that. Like really, I imagine quite painful tech debt about all that stuff, having to service the old stuff and make a way to have it transition without rugging anybody, et cetera. But both of them have created tribes that, or maybe tribe is not the right word, but passionate communities that are, are, are there and present for switching to some new tech substrate underneath. So I think those are very interesting lessons. And crypto definitely seems to reward people more so than Web2 for experimenting, for trying things, for having something that's a little bit of a rough draft out there. And uh, yeah, I think the future is bright. I'm just curious, how many, like speaking of social networks, how many hours would you say you spend a day on crypto Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Several. It's kind of just where I go. It's like the other thing I go to look at. You know, I don't, I, I look at, I look at that. Some, some people look at Discord. Some people refresh Reddit. Some people look at Instagram. Uh, I just go to Twitter. So yeah, several, it's probably several, uh, not every day. Some days I, I don't spend any time on Twitter. <laughs> I kind of wish it was Discord a little bit more. I feel like the private chats is really where hmm. more of the alpha is. Like, how would you, if you had to describe the culture of crypto Twitter, at least as you understand it, like if you had to describe that to your grandmother or to your mom or something, like how would you, how would you describe this entity that exists right now? Because I, I don't know, I, I'm not even sure quite what word I would use, but I find it a very unique uh, grouping of uh, insane people <laughs> on the internet. So I'm just curious how you would <laughs> describe it to someone else. I don't know. It's just kind of the Twitter that I see. It's just the people I see on Twitter. So I don't know how, I think it's kind of like a subreddit in terms of the same characters turning up. It's a little more like fuzzy at the edges for what your experience is and where it intersects with other people. There's less of a coherent experience, but I really just focus on following builders, people who actually get something done. And I try not to pay too much attention to people who are too involved in the financial aspect. So I think I miss some of the like trader memes for this reason, as hilarious as those can be. How would I explain it to someone who doesn't really know what it is? Web3 crypto seems to me to really attract kind of um, personalities on the edge. So there can, there's a lot of people who are very volatile in their emotional state and, and get very worked up and, and maybe say things that <laughs> they maybe uh, regret or, or, or don't feel for a long period of time. Uh, what's cool is that I think because crypto is very, has fin financial primitives that are, lend themselves to financialization very easily, it's able to persist in this way where I think I mean, I guess there are Web2 things where there's no, like Arena exists and is probably has a similar population size to crypto Twitter and it doesn't have a financial motive, but it is nice that it gets, crypto gets to like perpetuate. People are always kind of willing to like throw some cash around and it allows new projects to form that have their own aesthetics and their own values. So I really like that about it. Also, I think one thing that's super underrated about crypto Twitter is that everybody's DMs are open. Everybody's DMs are still open. I, I, I've been saying since 2020, like, I can't believe how many people have their DMs open and how you can just get in touch with anyone and 
most people are down to just talk to you, like whoever you are with some random Twitter profile. I think that is like an exceptional opportunity that people don't really uh, appreciate and that people spend much too much time worried about the specific projects that exist at any one time and not enough time focused on the people who are going to be the people who are here tomorrow and are that much more experienced. So I think people are too, too concerned with like the specifics of the projects at a given moment. Probably the people who create the most successful NFT projects, for example, will have created very, very bad NFT projects in the last cycle and will have learned something from it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, even like coming into the space from like a fine art background, like in the traditional art world, like it's such a closed circle. Like it's there's so many barriers to accessing people. But then like in crypto, like I was able to connect with people I would arguably otherwise never have the ability to just because of the openness and the welcomingness of like CT environment. So yeah, uh, I wanted to go back to Juicebox cards for a minute because you recently gave a talk at ETH Waterloo about it. I was wondering if you could talk about like the Juicebox metadata contracts, like what did you focus on in that talk? And then also you were like yeah, a totally. finalist for your project Piggy Bank 6551. Yeah, totally. I gave a talk at uh, ETH Waterloo about this uh, Juicebox metadata, uh, both the token resolver, the default resolver, and also the uh, Juicebox cards version. And uh, yeah, I just gave a kind of uh, like a little tech talk about what uh, some things I learned along the way building on-chain metadata contracts and some tips for how other people might benefit from those lessons. There's a room, there's about 25, 30 people, something in the room. Uh, and I think a lot of people new to NFTs, uh, ETH Waterloo had a really high percentage of attendees who were from the universities, like not uh, old hands in, in crypto. So uh, it was a good mix of people who maybe never heard of on-chain metadata. And I just wanted to share some of that information kind of to cap the, the V1 of the project and maybe see if anybody else wants to work on it. And then in the hackathon, uh, so I did a speech and then I also did a hackathon project. I kind of decided last minute that uh, I had this idea for a long time and the ERC 6551 team uh, from Vancouver, um, Future Primitive was there. And 6551 is like this EIP that assigns, it basically uses create two and a, a registry pattern to create one or up to infinite wallets for every NFT that exists, every 721 NFT uh, on Ethereum or on every chain actually, uh, every EVM chain. And basically uh, it allows you to use uh, an account a smart contract wallet that they provide to create addresses for every NFT. And the NFT is the one that controls that smart contract wallet. Uh, so I uh, wanted to do for a long time this piggy bank concept. So I uh, forked a simple version of their account contract and it let me basically create an NFT collection, although it would work with all NFTs, incidentally. But I made a specific NFT collection where you can deposit ETH into uh, an NFT that you mint. It's reflected in an on-chain SVG uh, that shows you how much ETH is contained inside of your uh, NFT. Uh, it also changes like the color uh, of the image uh, based on how much. And then in order to access the ETH that's inside the smart contract associated with that NFT, you have to burn the NFT. And when you burn the NFT, it gets sent to its own wallet address, which makes the, uh, the contract inaccessible, essentially burning the smart contract. Uh, although sending to 000 would do the same, but it's just kind of a... 6551 native style of burning. And when that happens, the smart wallet uh, gives uh, the ETH to the person who burned the NFT. So it acts like a piggy bank, mint an NFT, put ETH in it. You have to destroy the piggy bank to, to get the ETH back out. 
So I used the opportunity of the hackathon to do a version of that. And based on some of this SVG knowledge I gained during that project, I was able to about 14, 15 hours spin up uh, both the forked account contract and also the on-chain SVG, which was uh, pretty cool because it's actually easier for me for me now to do on-chain SVG than figure out how to do, <laughs> do it on a server probably. So uh, yeah, it was a fun project and it won uh, the Interaction Design Award for the 6551 sponsor prizes. And uh, I was also a finalist uh, at the ETH global level. So yeah, it was a fun project. Congrats, Nicholas. Uh, Thank what's, you. Uh, <laughs> is there anything like coming up for Piggy Bank? Like, are you going to continue developing it or like what's the plan for that project? Yeah, I am taking into account what I learned doing that implementation during the hackathon. And I'm thinking about how I might restructure the project a little bit and launch something similar on mainnet or who knows, maybe some other chains. Awesome. Well, before wrapping up, I want to talk a little bit about the podcast because you are (laughs) the host, the longtime host of Web3 Galaxy Brain and also another podcast, Solidity Galaxy Brain. And Briley and I actually edited that podcast for (laughs) a brief moment in time. And uh, I even before then, I edited a couple episodes way back. But um, you've been recording these weekly Twitter spaces, usually on a Friday afternoon. And you've been you've got over I think over 50 episodes in total. So you've been just on this relentless uh, content grind. I'm just curious, like, what are your motivations for producing this podcast over such a long period of time? And how you've been able to do that despite a lot of ups and downs sort of in in the crypto ecosystem over that, uh, particularly the last year, like I'm thinking back to like November mm. 2022 and other moments that have been particularly grim. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just kind of committed to doing the show and haven't really thought about stopping. There's been a couple of weeks where like I'm traveling or something and it's difficult, so I'll, I'll skip a week. But uh, for the most part, I, it's a good question how long I've been doing it. It's been over a year. I, I don't know how long exactly. But it's, it's, it's been quite a while. But I, I just like to meet people who are building in the ecosystem, like especially EVM, Ethereum-focused people. But I'm, I'm open to other people. I just don't, I don't know so much. So it's hard to diligence like what's interesting or not. But I just like talking to people who are working in this space and actually building something. So it's a fun opportunity for me to get to talk to people. And most people say yes to come on the show. So, you know, I'm excited. I think like coming up, I have the founder of uh, Res- Reservoir, which is like a NFT aggregator for making your own marketplaces and, and other apps. They'd like aggregate all the order book stuff. And next week I've got uh, Montoya from MetaMask, who's the PM of Snaps, which is their like new UI thing. So, you know, it's fun. Like I, I could maybe DM them and have like a private conversation, but I figure, you know, why not share that conversation and maybe someone else has an, some other ideas and it, it's, it's useful to people. And it's, it's nice for me just to get an excuse to, to meet I've met so many people all across the ecosystem. And actually recently I had one of my first uh, EF contributors, like Ethereum Foundation researcher. So I think it's very cool to, I'd like to get even more into the, the deeper protocol stuff over time as I become a little bit more knowledgeable. I think when I started, I started with Solidity Galaxy Brain uh, with the episode about splits uh, where it was Graham Boy from Mirror who had, I think the first splits contract really on mainnet. Uh, and then Foundation, uh, El Pizzo, Choi from Foundation, and a few other people as well. And that was kind of the first episode and went really well. I was a little bit nervous about the technical stuff. I was less of a Solidity developer then. So I think as I've become more legitimate in my Solidity chops, I think it, it's interesting to talk more with people who are, uh, who are even deeper in the tech stack and uh, you know get into it a little bit. It's, 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 it's fun to try to balance like 
having an interesting technical discussion with people that's very deep and you know not creating something boring or, or, or uninteresting. So I, I enjoy hearing about what specialists know about their special thing uh, rather than generalizations. So it's, it's always fun for me to do the show. Can you tell us where you see yourself heading next on your journey, whether that's like Solidity projects or other things that you're thinking about in the crypto space? Any other news that's coming up for you? Yeah, totally. So I, I just finished this Juicebox cards metadata stuff, taking a little bit of a break from Juicebox over the summer. I want to do uh, an NFT project. And then from there, I have no idea. I have no big plans. I would love to play more with generative AI stuff, not walk away from crypto in any way, but I think that's a very interesting set of tools for uh, for making games, especially things, things around narrative. I think there's a lot of underexplored territory for making interesting scenarios that are engaging uh, and, and really fun and interesting and novel kinds of games that use the generative stuff as a, a primitive in, in creating the game experience. The other thing is I, I was thinking about cameras. In my grad degree, I did some uh, experiments with like Raspberry Pis and camera electronics. And I would really like to collaborate with someone who is awesome at electronics to do some physical hardware camera prototypes. I don't really think I have the stamina to make a camera company. I think that's like a whole other thing, but I would like to have some of the ideas that I have had over the years for physical cameras actually made real. And I would love to collaborate with someone. So if anyone listening is awesome at hardware electronics and you want to collaborate on some art projects, click the, click the button. <laughs> it's funny. I, I feel like maybe even Jiggly Jams could potentially help you out there because he did uh, electrical engineering and was working on some stuff at, for mm -hmm. sure with cameras, at least in some respect, or the sensors in the uh, the Honda Civic and similar vehicles for the uh, comma.ai thing that he used to work on. I don't really? know. Oh, maybe, I didn't know he maybe he could uh, send you in the right direction. I don't know. I forgot that. Oh, well. Yeah, I should definitely talk to Jiggly. Yeah. 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 He was the first hardware engineer hire. Crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to discuss or any like closing thoughts that you want to get in there? Any last minute hot takes? <laughs> I guess one thing we didn't talk about is uh, Web3 Galaxy Brain, the, the show that's every Friday afternoon. I, I sell sponsorships on Juicebox. So if you're interested in sponsoring that show and listening to this and, and think you'd like to talk to that audience, I'd have to look really at the numbers, but I would say on average, an episode is like 100 to 350 listens, something like that between the live and the recorded version, at least right now. Who knows if in the long run, those get more playbacks as time goes on. I, I have no intention to stop. Uh, so if you'd like to sponsor an episode, uh, you can go to the Juicebox page for Web3 Galaxy Brain. You can just search on Juicebox with like a command K, control K. And there's uh, sponsorships for a single episode or a few episodes and uh, they get burned into the mp3 so those are those are going to be there forever and and in the transcripts also and i do a kind of fun thing where i read the sponsor thing uh, during the recorded intro but also live in the middle of the show so you just give me a little piece of text or tell me what you want me to ad lib about and then sometimes the guests are like oh yeah i, I love that product <laughs> or like a little bit of interaction so that's kind of a fun uh, element to the sponsorship so if you're interested uh, listen to the show uh, Fridays, 5 p.m. Eastern on Twitter Spaces, uh, on just on my handle, Nicholas with four leading ends, or uh, the podcast version is web3galaxybrain.com. And you can also find a link to, to sponsor an episode. I'd love to have you as a sponsor as long as you're not a scammer. Uh, so yeah, that's that's it. 
Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Nicholas, uh, for taking the time to sit down with us. It's kind of like a full circle moment because we like way back listened to the first few episodes of the Juicecast that you hosted. And then for a little while, we were like editing your podcast. And then now you're back as a guest on this podcast that we're now hosting. So <laughs> it's this funny little, uh, you know, time is a circle. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, hanging out today. Of course, thank you for having me and congratulations for all the great work you've done with JuiceCast and the newsletter. Everything you're doing is great. Uh, I really like it. Thank you, Nicholas. Uh, okay, great. <laughs> well, we will, you know, see you on the blockchain, as you always like to say in your outros. <laughs> I'm going to crib that, that uh, slogan from you. That's but, good. Uh, thanks yeah, again. thanks for having me. This was fun. See you on the blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Nicholas. Thanks again, Nicholas.